morning. Okay, we are still in the book of 1 Corinthians. We are still in our Address the Mess series, which is about First and Second Corinthians, which were letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. I'll catch you up real quick, and then we'll jump right into the message, because there's a lot to cover today. Okay, so uh, Paul helped establish the Corinthian church four or five years before he wrote this letter to them. And when he helped them establish it, he did sit, go in and hand them some papers and leave. I mean, he went in and spent 14 to 15 months training them and teaching them how to set it up and, uh, and teaching them how to be leaders. I mean, he really invested in them during that time. Uh, and now that same church had become so influenced by the world that you couldn't hardly recognize them. And they were very carnal and very immature. Uh, and it was really difficult for Paul to see them become carnal and immature and, and self-righteous after he'd spent so much time with them. So he decided to write these letters. Uh, they had also become very compromising. Now this week, uh, we're going to discuss chapter 5. Lord willing, we're going to finish the whole chapter. Uh, but it's kind, of a, it's kind of a powerful chapter because Paul's going to focus this whole chapter on sexual immorality. Not that that's a problem in our world anymore, but it was then. So he's going to be covering that. Now, one of the most powerful temptations that all people face uh, is sexual temptation. It just is what it is. And God designed sexual intimacy. It's not a bad thing. It's not something dirty. I mean, it's God designed it for one man and one woman for two purposes. He designed it for the first for the purpose of procreation of our species. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of the people in the old churches that thought that was the only thing it was for. So you, you ever wonder why they had 12 and 13 kids? <laughs> there's your answer. Anyway, uh, and the second purpose was to create a special intimate bond between a husband and a wife. Now, sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife is meant to be enjoyed, and God views it as something to be honored uh, when it's between a man and a woman uh, that are married. Now, I don't think I need to explain why sexual intimacy is a good thing for marriage, but I do need to explain how sexual immorality can become, or sexual intimacy can become sexual immorality and become destructive. So, basically, when sexual intimacy is used outside of God's design, it becomes sin, and sin leads to destruction uh, and disappointment and heartache and death. So I titled today's message from intimacy to immorality, uh, and the text will reveal why. Today we'll discuss how destructive se sexual uh, uh, immorality can be for not just people, but for churches, uh, because sexual immorality is not only uh, still in our present society, but it was an epidemic then, and it's an epidemic now. Okay, that's as quick as I can catch up. So let's jump right in today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul said, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Ew. Basically what this is saying was someone was sleeping with their stepmother and still in the church. Okay? Now, as our society proves every day, I mean, minimalizing sexual immorality like we've done over the years um, just opens Pandora's box. When you start minimalizing it, you open the door to all kinds of craziness, and we have. Uh, and if a society's standard for morality becomes blurry or subjective or left up to the people, then trouble's coming, and we see the result of that right now. But the only way that it can get in that trouble, the only way that can happen is for a society to just turn a blind eye to sexual immorality. And I don't know what you think, but I think that's what's going on now. It's just, everybody's just turned their eye and ignores it, you know what I mean? And that's exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were, I mean, at worst, ignoring immorality in their church. And at best, they were tolerating sexual immorality. So either way, it wasn't good. They even had a man who was having an affair with his stepmother, and nobody did anything about it. And I'll explain why that's so significant. Because Paul said, listen, even pagans don't do that. That was considered incest back then, and it still is. 
And he said, listen, even pagans don't get involved in that. What is wrong with you? How far have you fallen that you can do something that immoral, something that pagans won't do, and, and be okay with it? Now, in verses 2 through 5, it seems that the Corinthian elders were even proud of how they handled it. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 5, 2. He says, you are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. Okay, now, most likely, they pretended that they were tolerant of, with sin, and, and their tolerance proved how gracious they were and how they were extending so much love uh, and grace because they were self-righteous, let's just be honest, and they didn't want to admit they were wrong. But their pride and self-righteousness made them blind to the basics of just right and wrong. They had become blind to that. And at the very least, they were too prideful to admit they dropped the ball. But it sounds like they were actually saying, yes, this is going on. But because we're so loving and gracious, we're giving them a span of time and trying to be gracious to them when they were really just ignoring it. So Paul said that leaders who ignore or accept blatant sexual, sexual immorality shouldn't be proud at all. He's saying you should be ashamed of yourself. You know, I think that all the time today when I hear this, that churches are just, just merging with the world's ideologies when it comes to sexual immorality. They're so afraid to run somebody off that they won't teach them the truth anymore. Listen, if me preaching the truth to you runs you off, don't let the door hit you. You know what I mean? Because here's the way I look at it. The truth is what sets you free. Allowing you to live in a lie is what keeps you in prison. And that's what they were doing. They were allowing them to live in a lie. And he's saying, you shouldn't be proud of yourself. You should be you should be mourning because blatant sin like that in a church reveals, you know, that they're drifting from God. It's a sign that they're drifting away from God and his teachings. And the further away from God that a church drifts, the more ineffective that church becomes. And the more ineffective a church becomes, the less God's going to bless that church and their work. So this is something that should never, ever, ever be ignored. Now, Paul stated, you should remove, listen to this, you should remove this man from your fellowship, Okay. And the fact that he said that reveals something. In the Greek, the word remove is iro, and it means to take away or to take out. Okay, then the Greek word for fellowship is mesos, and it means in the middle or in the midst. Now, that word mesos uh, gives the idea of being in the middle or the midst of all the action. Okay, that's what it actually means. That's what he was saying. And this is actually the first indication about something that a lot of people don't think about when they read chapter 5, and that is that this offender that Paul mentioned who was involved in this sexual immorality was likely a church leader. Most likely he was a church leader, and I'll explain why. He was involved in church leadership. And what Paul was saying was that this offender should be removed from the action of leadership. That's what he was saying, removed from the action of leadership. Now, throughout the rest of chapter 5, Paul discusses and explains exactly what that means and why. And in verses 3 through 5, Paul reminded them that as leaders, they had an obligation to discipline sin and get it out of the church, especially in leadership. So look at verse 3. It says, even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. You must call a meeting of the church. I will present you with, uh, I will be present with you in spirit. And so will the power of our Lord Jesus. So again, from Paul's reaction to this situation, the way he's reacted and how involved he's gotten with this, I'd say this offender was a church leader. Now think about it. If they kicked everybody out of the church who was involved in blatant sin, who would be left? If it were just normal people, you know, if it were lay people or people that were not in leadership, and they kicked them out every time they committed a serious sin, would they have anybody in their congregation? Absolutely not. They would have nobody left. 
And another thing to consider is Paul was writing to the leaders of the Corinthian church. That's who these letters were written to and addressed to, was the leaders of the Corinthian church. And Paul wouldn't, wouldn't have been surprised at all if somebody would have said, hey, you're never going to believe this. But there's immoral people in Corinth going to church. And he'd have been like, no. And that wouldn't have been a big deal. It wouldn't have surprised him at all because they were known for being sexually licentious or, or, or feeling like they had a license to be sexually immoral. And they were known for being sexually immoral. Corinth was known for that. I mean, people, when they traveled there, traveled there expecting immorality. It was nothing new, and that's why it wouldn't have been surprising to Paul if someone would have said, you're not going to believe this, but somebody in Corinth that's actually going to church is sexually immoral. He'd been like, no kidding, that's why we set a church up there. That place is like, you know, terrible. Of course there's people doing that, right? That's not it. Also, Paul used the phrase, turn them over to Satan, when he was talking about this leader. He said, turn them over to Satan, and people hear that, and they get all kinds of confused. But he only used that phrase to be turned over to Satan one other time in the New Testament. And it was in 1 Timothy. Look at this, 1 Timothy 1.18. It says, Timothy, my son, uh, Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier. May they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciousness, uh, their consciences, and as a result, their faith has been what? Shipwrecked, which means their faith has stalled and is, in a, and is in a serious state of disrepair, if you will. Verse 20, Hymenius and Alexander are two examples. You know, people would blow my email up if I called you out for your sin in church, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that blow you up? I said, you're not going to believe what Kevin did this week at work. I heard about it. Come close, I'll tell you. That's, he called them out. Listen to this. It says, Hymenius and Alexander are two examples. I threw them out and what? Handed them over to Satan so that they may, they might what? Learn not to blaspheme. That's going to be really important. So they might learn not to blaspheme God. So a lot of scholars agree, if you study it, that Hymenius and Alexander were church leaders or church community leaders. And so when he, the last group of people he turned over to Satan were also church leaders. And he turned them over with a purpose, and we'll look at that here in just a minute. But this would also explain how Paul heard about this situation in the first place. Because no one would have thought twice again about, about the Corinthians being involved in sexual sin, even the ones in the church. So I can't imagine someone would make a point to contact Paul and tell him what everybody already knew about that city. It was a trashy city, and they were full of people who were sexually immoral. Paul wouldn't have even thought about that. So, it, I mean, it was pretty obviously uh, a church leader they're talking about. Now, unfortunately, that compromising mentality is still alive in many churches today, and it really, really bothers me. This is something, believe it or not, I want every church that's teaching the truth to succeed. We work well with other churches. Anybody that's teaching the truth, we're more than happy to work with them. If somebody prefers to go to another church that's teaching the truth, I'm with you. Go ahead. As long as you are someplace where you can learn and grow close to God, I'm happy. That's not what I'm, I'm I have nothing against other churches. But it keeps me up at night when there's churches who have been doing a good job that start drifting from the truth. Because you know what's coming over the horizon. It's going to be trouble. But in many Churches and religious organizations, leadership is bought and sold today. It's bought and sold, and that makes me sick to hear that. It makes me think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, how they were so manipulated by money and power. It's happening today. And I'm not going to call people out, but I have personally witnessed pastors ignore the sins of the wealthy and the influential because they didn't want to make a mat, didn't want to leave the church. They wanted the rich people to stay. 
You know, and I've even seen pastors put people they knew were carnal and immoral and involved in all kinds of sin and terrible things and put them in leadership positions knowing what they were doing. Literally, I know one who put someone who was in the middle of an affair on their board or in leadership, knowing good and well what they were involved in. Why? The same reason they buy and sell leadership. Because they thought if I give them an important position, they'll certainly never leave and they'll keep writing those checks. And I was sickened when I saw this. I wasn't happy that another church was doing something wrong. I wanted this church to succeed. I was praying for them, but it sickened me that that's still happening today. That's the same kind of stuff that was happening in Corinth, and it's happening not just in America, but in a small town like ours. Now, in both 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, the goal of this fellowship was restoration. Okay? Now, every church, our church, everybody has people that make mistakes because we all make mistakes and we all sin. But ignoring it doesn't help the person, right? But when you do discipline sin, especially in your leadership, you can't do it for any other purpose than hoping to see them restored. Look at verse 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says, Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to, to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be what? Saved on the day the Lord returns. Okay, on the day the Lord returns. This is important. So the phrase turned over to Satan was a term that actually described excommunication or disfellowship. That's what it meant in their time, excommunication or disfellowship. And here's why they said turn him over to Satan. Let me explain where that, where that, uh, that phraseology came from. It's really important, okay? They saw the devil uh, through different eyes than we do, and I wish we all would see the devil like they did. They, they saw the devil as mainly operating in the sphere of worldly influence. So basically, anything that was influenced by the world and not God, they said that's the devil's sphere of operation. That's where he, he, you know, he does his thing, right? So they saw being outside of the church as being in the sphere of the devil's influence. That's the way they saw it. Now, the church, or the body of Christ, that means every church that's, you know, teaching the truth, they operate within the sphere of God's influence through his word. So they saw it as two different worlds. There's the world outside, that's under the devil's influence, and the world inside the body of Christ, which is under the influence of Jesus. That's the way they saw it. You guys with me? Okay, two of you said yes, so we got to keep moving. All right, so that was, that was really, really important. And God influences people through his word and through his appointed leadership. That's how he influences people, okay? So it's kind of strange. In the sphere of, of the church or the body of Christ, the standard is God in his word. That's our standard. I never understood why there's so many denominations. There's no denominations mentioned in the Bible. And I never understood why there are so many and why there's so many different theologies when if we would make the word of God the final authority, we could solve every denominational disagreement. We could solve it. If we would sit down and say, listen, I'm not going to talk to you as a Baptist. I'm not going to talk to you as a Pentecostal or Catholic or Lutheran or whatever. I'm going to sit down and talk to you as a brother in Christ. Let's go to the word. Let's take the word to its original language. Let's find out the tense, the sentence structure. Let's break down the context. Let's find out what he's saying, who he's saying it to, why he's saying it, and what it means. Let's do that. And if churches would put aside their pride in their denomination and all this other foolishness and just focus on the word of God being the standard, we'd have no problems, right? So the sphere of God's influence or the body of Christ, God's word is the standard in that sphere. But outside the church or in the secular world, man determines the standard. And the Bible says that whatever we plan leads to death. Okay, so that's trouble right there. So removing one from fellowship of the church 
in their mind was placing them in the enemy's domain, the enemy's sphere of influence. That's what they thought when they removed somebody from the church. So when they said turn them over to Satan, they didn't mean that they took an elevator and found Satan somewhere in the inner dark world and said, yeah, we got, a, we got one for you. That's not what it was talking about. It meant that we were removing them from the influence of God's standard and placing them, since they love the world so much, we're going to place them there. We're going to allow them to see how they operate in the enemy's sphere of influence. And the goal was that they would find out how hard a believer's life can be outside of the will of God. Because here's something I always tell people. People always say, you guys believe in eternal security? And I say, yes. And I think it's so funny when they go, why? I go, I don't know, because the Bible teaches it everywhere, you know? So people say, when you teach eternal security, you are giving people a license to sin. Is this bad? I could literally grab my ankles and spew when people say that. I can't stand hearing people say that. Because you know they're just toeing the party line. They've heard that by some preacher their whole life, right? They say, you're just giving them a license to sin. I said, well, then go ahead. And they said, what? I said, if you think you can get away with sin and ignore it, do it. And they go, what, are you promoting it? No, I'm promoting discipline because you step out and sin like that and don't repent. God will drop the hammer on you, I promise. And if God doesn't drop the hammer on you, you're not one of his. And that's what he tells us in Hebrews. He only disciplines his own, and if you can go without discipline and sin, you're not one of his. You're the neighbor kid. You know what I mean? He's not, you're not under his influence. So it drives me crazy when people think that because we believe in eternal security, we believe in getting away with sin. No, we don't. And they didn't either. And they knew so much that God would go after those who have drifted that they said, okay, you love the world so much, we're going to give you to the world. You're out of leadership. We're not going to let you lead in our church because right now you're having an affair on God with the world. You're trading God's principles for the world's principles. You're ignoring the truth that sets you free and, and leaning to the, the lies that had you in bondage before you met Jesus. So here's the deal. You want to live like that? You can go live like that out there. As a leader, we can't have that. Right? And they knew that once they got out there, they'd find out that outside of the will of God is no place for a believer to be because you will end up in that spiritual woodshed, I promise you. And life is hard. Let's be honest. How many people have ever been in, out of the will of God and you felt the disciplining hand of God? Anybody? I know I have. And I always think to myself, how do people do this? How do they live like this? You know, I, I was terrible when I was a kid. Dad always used to say, I never have to worry about you. I, you're always getting in trouble, but you always tell on yourself. I learned better as I became a teenager than doing that. But I'm just saying, when I was younger, I told on myself because I couldn't stand knowing that I'd let him down and that I'd betrayed him. Listen, when you know you're betraying God, number one, you sh that should bother you. If it doesn't, there's something wrong. And then God's not going to leave you out there to be destroyed. He's going to send discipline, and that's what they were doing. They were allowing them to face the consequences or suffer the consequences of following the world's influence rather than God. So they just said, okay, that's what you want. You can have it. Now, all that being said, it's obvious that Paul's goal for this offender was restoration because if you look in verse 5, he says, then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that uh, his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. So as in all the cases of divine discipline, the offender remains saved despite their sin. Remember this. Write this down. Get a tattoo. Listen. Heaven and hell is not determined with good or bad works. Heaven and hell is not determined by anything you do or do not do. 
And people get mad about that, but if you want to reference it, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 2 Timothy 1, 9, it's all over the place, right? But here's the reason why. If, if going to heaven is about what you do or you do not do, then redemption lies within your power, not within the power of God. The reason it can't be about works is because the greatest work ever done was done at Calvary's Hill by Jesus Christ. And that's the work that will impress God. What are you going to tell God? I didn't cuss for 20 years. Oh, well, that's better than my son dying innocently on a cross after being born of a virgin. No, that's not going to work like that. What work do you have that trumps dying innocently on a cross, defeating death, hell, and the grave, coming back to life, walking and training with the disciples after that resurrection, then ascending to the Father in front of hundreds of people? What work do you have that God can say, okay, that, that's better. Come on in. That's why it's not about works. It cannot be about works. Right? Very, very, very important. It can't be about work. So he's saying, listen, yes, they're going to be disciplined. They'll still go to heaven, but their road to heaven is going to be rough because they're going to have to wade through the discipline of God every day that they choose to live in rejection. They're going to have to wade through God's discipline. That's going to happen every day. Then when they get there, yes, they'll be allowed to go to heaven, but they're not going to be able to reign in the kingdom because they've lived disobediently. So yes, there is a lot of things that go along with a Christian who gets out of the will of God, just losing your salvation isn't one of them, and he made a point of telling us that here. Now, verse 6, it says, your boasting about this is what? Terrible. Okay, you can see he was disgusted. He says, don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads, spreads through the whole batch of dough? Okay, I love this illustration. In verse 6, Paul explained how serious sin, especially sexual immorality, is in the lives of people and in the church. And to illustrate that, he brought up something that would, everybody would know about. See, back then there wasn't a McDonald's and a Burger King and a Dairy Queen on every corner. You cooked, right? That's why one of the most important things in a wife was that, no, I'm just kidding, that she could cook. I'm, I'm just kidding. That's, I'm not going to lie, that's still important. I hit a home run on that one, my wife can cook. Gosh, I want to call people out so bad, but I'm going to behave. Anyway, um, but it was really, really important. At, at that, he knew that they understood what bread and the process of making bread was. They didn't go to Kroger, the Jerusalem Kroger, and get a loaf of, you know, you know uh, Wonder Bread. They had to make it. They had to roll the dough and all. What I don't know how to make it, so I'm not going to pretend I do. All I know is it's doughy and then it's bread, whatever. But, you know, they had to make their own bread, and bread was a staple in every culture's diet, so he knew that they would understand how the making of bread works, so he used that as an illustration. See, when yeast is added to a batch of dough, it affects the entire batch. It doesn't matter if you put just a little bit in. It spreads, and it affects the entire batch of dough, and, it, and the change it promotes is obvious to anybody who sees it. You can't hide the fact that there's yeast in bread because it's going to rise. It's just the way it is. It's going to rise. It, whether you put a little or a lot, it might rise a little or a lot, but it is going to rise if there's any yeast in it, and it's very obvious to the human eye. You can see it. And the change it promotes is so obvious that you couldn't say, I didn't put leaven in that. I didn't put yeast in that. And you're going, really? Because it's mighty puffy. You know what I mean? <laughs> you couldn't hide the fact that you did that. Now, the same is true with sin that's left unchecked in a believer's life, or especially in church leadership. The same concept is true but paul said unlike dough sin can be quickly removed from a life or from a church before it does all the damage it could it can be but sin just like leaven or just like yeast a little bit left unchecked in your life can destroy you it spreads 
it can destroy you. It becomes obvious to people. It changes you. Has anybody here ever become bitter because they've allowed something in their life they shouldn't have? And if you don't deal with that bitterness, it goes from that guy makes me sick to, man, I can't stand that guy, to, gosh, I wish somebody would cement his mouth shut. And after a while, you see that person. Don't act self-righteous. You've had this happen in your life where you see that person, you go, I'm going to barf. They're here. You know, you let it consume you. And the next thing you know, they're not being punished. You are because you've allowed that seed of bitterness to to be planted in your life. And like yeast in bread, it changes you, even your appearance and your countenance. It changes everything about you. Right. It's obvious. But Paul said it could still be, you know, removed, unlike leaven that can't be removed. You put yeast in bread, it's in there. But sin can be removed. And the process of removing sin in church leadership or from personal life is pretty simple in its inception. All right, let me explain this to you real quickly. Okay, for a, a believer, to remove sin from their life is this simple. You acknowledge that it's sin and confess it to God. Now, I know some of you may have been taught that you had to pray and, you know, do a bunch of different things and, you know, make penance and all that stuff. All that sounds real spiritual. It's just not Bible. Prayer is good. I'm not talking about that, but here's what it, here's what it takes. You've got to acknowledge, God, I'm wrong, and you're right. Because that's what sin is. Sin is that you are disagreeing with God's standard of righteousness, right? And so the first thing you have to do is say, yes, what I'm doing is wrong. I see it in your word. I am wrong, and you are right. And then confess to him, Lord, I shouldn't have done this. I'm sorry. I confess this sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we say we have no sin, we are what? Deceiving ourselves, and the truth what? Is not in us. Means if you think that your sin is okay and God's going to ignore it, you are a fool. You're deceiving yourself. Then he comes back with verse 9. If we confess our sin, he, capital H being God, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. So to remove sin from our life, from the life of a believer, is pretty simple. Acknowledge what you're doing is wrong, confess it to God, and leave it there. Now, don't do what a lot of people do. They confess their sin to God and get up and still won't forgive themselves for that sin and wear it forever. What's the point of having God's forgiveness if you won't forgive yourself? Why do you have the right to hold a grudge against yourself when the creator of everything that exists says, if you confess it, I will cleanse you? And he told Peter when they were talking about what they could eat and what they could not, he said, don't ever call anything I've cleansed unclean. So when you ask for forgiveness and confess your sin to God if you believe his word you're forgiven he doesn't lie but to come out of that prayer and continually blame yourself for that sin in my opinion is just as much sin as what you went in with because you're saying his forgiveness and his word isn't like the word of God says it is you're denying his word okay that's really really important so it's easy to get that sin out of your life as a believer now when it comes to church leadership it's easy you know, in the practice of, but in the emotion of, it wouldn't be easy. It's never easy to fire somebody. How many people have ever been in management here? Raise your hands. Okay, well, every eye's closed, so you can't be judged. How many people in here have ever fired somebody? Raise your hand. Oh, yeah. If you like it, there's something wrong with you. You know what I mean? It's terrible. It's kind of the same thing. In church leadership, if they refuse to repent of their sin and they get involved in sin, the f- you have to excommunicate them. You have to take them out of leadership. You have to take them out of leadership. They're different than a normal layperson that's attending the congregation. They're not any more important, 
but they have people looking at them and following them, and for you to accept their sin is to make people think you agree with their sin. You have to remove them from being a church leader and disfellowship them, because if you don't remove them, people will see it, and it spreads like cancer, right? And as someone who's had cancer, you leave cancer unchecked, it will kill you, right? If you leave sin unchecked, it will slowly eat away at your spiritual growth and your spiritual health until you feel spiritually dead. That's what happens when you leave it unchecked. And also by leaving it unchecked, it can spread to the people in your church. And not only is your personal life in a shambles, but that sin can start spreading throughout your church if no one does anything about it. So that's really important. And next, Paul said, if they get rid of the wicked person, now understand the translation here. Wicked person doesn't mean they're desperate without hope. It means that it's someone who has chosen sin willingly over God, refuses to repent of it, so they're practicing wickedness. That's what it means. But he said if you get rid of the wicked person, you would be spiritually renewed as a leadership. Now look at this, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, get rid of the old yeast, okay, by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So what he's saying is, listen, you are actually a new batch of dough because when, when you believe, the Bible says old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. So you're like a new batch of dough, right? Verse 8, so let us celebrate the festival. This is going to be important. They're talking about the festival of the Passover. It says, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. Now, again, I want to explain this bread illustration because, remember, we're talking about people who understand or understood Judaism. Even the people who were pagans who came into the church, the influence was immense. So they understood a lot about the history of what happened, you know, in, with God's people, right? So the background here, if you go to Exodus chapter 12, it explains why he's saying this. We're not going to go there right now, but you can check me out later. Um, but in Exodus chapter 12, it explains the background of why Paul wrote verses 6 through 8. See, the Jews prepared for the Passover celebration every year, one of the things they did was remove all the leaven, which leaven and yeast are the same thing. They removed it from their home, all of it. Every last sign of it had to be removed from their homes before they could start that part of the Passover feast. Now, removing the leaven or removing this yeast was meant to be a reminder to them, and it was supposed to remind them of how quickly they had to depart from Egypt. And did they leave quickly from Egypt? Yes. Why? Because the people of Egypt said, get out of here. Here, take this, take this. What do you need? Just get out of here. They wanted them to leave because, remember, God had sent plagues on Pharaoh to, to convince him to release his people. And, and, and Pharaoh was obstinate, and he was, he was you know, uh, one of those people that just refused to admit he was wrong. He was stubborn. And every time they'd bring a plague, he'd say, okay, you can go. And then as soon as he starts to let them go, never mind, I'm not letting God get away with that. Whatever your God's doing, he ain't going to win. So all these plagues came upon these people, terrible plagues, getting boils on their flesh, frogs everywhere, which I have to admit is some Quentin Tarantino type stuff. Frogs everywhere, everywhere. All kinds of plagues that come upon them. And the last one was killing the firstborn of every family that didn't have the blood of the lamb above the doorpost, which is to symbolize Jesus, right? So they remembered that stuff. And the last time Pharaoh said you could go, the people of Egypt said, get out of here. Hurry before he changes his mind. We don't want any more of your stinking plagues. We believe your God's powerful. Will you please get out of here? Well, they wanted them to leave so fast that they didn't have time 
to make bread and let it rise and wait for it to rise. They didn't have time. So they made their dough and didn't add yeast and left with it. And since it did not have yeast or leaven, it was called unleavened bread. And when they were out in the desert, with they, a lot of them ate bread that had never had yeast added to it. It was unleavened. Anybody ever eat unleavened bread at a Passover celebration or anything? I wish I could be more spiritual, but man, it's nasty. It's nasty. But it's meant to teach us something, right? It's meant to teach us something. This is, this is the whole reason he kept bringing this up, this, this thing about leaven, right? They left quickly because they, they, didn't, they didn't have time, and so they didn't have time to let their bread rise, so they left with it unleavened. And so um, they had it with them when they left, and that's pr pretty much what they ate until they ran out. And then God started bringing food from heaven, which is another sermon. i got to quit preaching that right now. Okay. But because even a little bit of yeast would cause the bread to rise, they had to make sure they didn't put, let any yeast touch it or it would go bad trying to rise on the road. So they just had to leave that all out, right? So even a little leaven would have caused the bread to rise. When it does, it completely changes it, like we said earlier. Likewise, sexual sin eventually has a profound negative effect on people and definitely a negative effect on a church. I don't know if you've ever known of a church that's been affected by this, but I have. I mean, churches, I'm sure you've all heard the stories because that's all they tell you on the news. They never say anything good about churches. It's always something bad. But when, when leadership's run off with some, somebody when that's not their wife or whatever, it destroys a church, destroys it. And you can't have just a little bit of sexual immorality and say it's okay. As soon as it gets involved in your church and they don't deal with it, it will completely change the makeup of that church, change it negatively, and it will destroy the person, the people, if they don't repent, and it'll destroy the church. So the Jews would remove every trace of leaven from their house during every Passover dinner to remind them of that. So that's why Paul was using the illustration of leaven because he knew they understood the, how it affected the dough and, it, and he wanted them to know that sin affected your lives the same way. Now, we still see this concept today in churches and in believers' lives because there's still a lot of churches and still a lot of believers who ignore the sin in their lives. They're great at making excuses, not so much at accepting responsibility. And sin not only negative affects the life and faith of the one who commits it, it spreads like that leaven to everyone. And have you ever noticed that if a church accepts something with one person, everyone else will accept it and start doing it too? I've seen this so many times, and it destroys churches. Ultimately, the whole body will be destroyed. And I've seen this happen, and this is what Paul's trying to prevent from happening. And if we're honest, we've all allowed, allowed that little bit of sin to hang around too long in our lives at one time or another, haven't we? We act like God doesn't know. And if it's just a little, I'll get away with it. Here's the thing. It drives me crazy when people hide things from me. Because if Pastor Chris doesn't know, God certainly doesn't know. Right? I think that's so foolish. I've had people come in and say, well, pardon my French. And I'm like, listen, it's not French, and I'm not going to pardon it. If you have the wherewithal to say pardon it, you have the wherewithal to not say it. You know what I mean? Or they say, I don't want to say this in the house of God, but outside of here, I'll tell you what I think of. I'm like, God hears you out there too. You can't hide sin from God. You cannot hide sin from God. And people try to all the time, but it will be revealed and it can destroy you and the body where you worship. And what's sad and frustrating is people live like that when forgiveness is so easy to have. Why? Would you stay in debt if you had the money to pay it off? I mean, maybe some of you crazy people would, but if you had the money to pay your debt off, pay it off, you know? Can you imagine saying, yeah, I'm 80 grand in debt. I've got 150 in the bank, but I like having debt. 
It helps my credit score. That's what they tell you at the bank because they're the one getting the interest. You know what I mean? No, keep that loan. It'll help your credit score and our bottom line. Why would you not pay it off? So why would you let sin start destroying your life when you know it's wrong, you can feel its presence is changing you, when forgiveness is a confession away? I don't understand that. Listen to this, Proverbs 28, 13. It says, he who, he who conceals his transgression will what? Will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find what? Compassion. Okay, now, at the, I love this. We're getting ready to go to the end of chapter 5, and I just want to set this up. I love this last section, and a lot of people take it differently. A lot of people take this wrong, actually. Okay, he's going to talk about how you should handle fellowship with someone who is willfully transgressing God and refuses to repent, especially immorality. So let's take a look at this. This is the end of chapter 5. It said, starting in verse 9, When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. Okay? Verse 10, But I wasn't talking about what? Unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, or are greedy, or cheat people, or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I love that statement. You ever see those, those churches that are kind of cultish and they like try to hide from the world and they end up building a compound and buying guns and stuff? You know what I mean? Yeah, this is what he's talking about. He's saying, I'm not saying to avoid anybody that has this problem in the world because the world is full of this. That's why I left you there to witness to them, right? Verse 11, I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats on people or cheats people. Don't even what? Eat with such a person. Eating with people, and I'll finish this, the verses here in just a second, but eating with people was very intimate to them. If you wanted to show someone you honored them, you would invite them to your house for dinner. And when they would come, they would have their servants wash your feet as a sign of respect, and then bring you into the house, and they would serve you a meal, and they would recline at the table together. So eating with someone was a sign of intimate fellowship with someone. You were close to them. You were walking step and step. You agreed with them. He says, don't even eat with such people. Verse 12, it is my responsibility to judge. Uh, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church uh, who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must, remove all the uh, you must remove the evil person from among you. I love how he closes this chapter. I love it because he reminds his readers of one very important thing, and that very important thing is God reserves his discipline for his people, but he reserves his grace for everyone else. God's discipline is just for God's people. God does not discipline unbelievers. Why would he? Why? Do you discipline the neighbor's kid? I'm not saying you don't want to. I see some of you looking at me going, no, but they need it. Right? But listen, you, can't, you don't discipline them or you shouldn't because they're not your kid. Right? But now when it's your kid, they're going to get it. Right? They're going to get time out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should not make fun of that. I really shouldn't. It's just that I've said this a million times. Time out at my house was dad taking a breather between whipping seven kids. I don't understand that. But anyway, it's not your job to, to discipline the neighbor kid. And, and listen, 
it's not the church's job to discipline unbelievers either. It's not our job. They will have to face God someday, but it is our job to deal with what's going on within the body of Christ. That's our job. And you can't be a coward about it. You have to be willing to confront any leadership that gets out of the will of God. But if it's someone that's not in leadership, you know, you still have to confront it, but you don't need to remove them, or at least we don't see evidence of that yet. But I love what he's saying here because in verses 9 and 10, he's basically saying, listen, it's, it, you don't, don't judge people unless they're believers. And if they're leaders and believers, then you need to deal with it, basically is what he's saying. But even if they're not leaders, there's one principle in these verses that goes to regular Christians and leaders. It goes to both. And that is this not eating with them, right? That's really important. I'll explain that to you. He said you should dissociate yourself from people who refuse to live the way God told them to, blatantly live in it, because we're supposed to be lights to the world. Listen, listen to what Jesus said here. We're supposed to be lights of hope in a dark world full of despair, not what we've become. Verse 14, Matthew 5, 14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and what? Right, and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Everything we do is being watched. Everything we do is being watched by the outside world. We're supposed to try to keep ourselves from controversy and sin and things like that so that we can win people. When people see us and hear us, they're supposed to see and hear God. They're supposed to see that in us. And it's so important that as believers, we hold each other accountable and especially hold our church leaders accountable. I mean, we do that by trying to restore those who are straying, first and foremost, not just leaders, you want to restore anyone who's straying. And God wants us to do that at any cost, even if it costs us tough love. He wants us to restore them at any cost. And I'll explain why here in just a minute. But again, especially our spiritual leaders, because when they lose their way, if we don't correct them, they'll lead others down the wrong path too. You've got to correct that. But unfortunately, sometimes tough love for leaders includes excommunication. It's just the way it is. But here's the thing. It's not just only with leaders when you know someone who's living blatantly immorally you got to be careful how you associate with that person right now i'm not talking about unbelievers i'm talking about believers right we should not approach them with a judgmental attitude and try to condemn them what we should do is be compassionate and try to restore them right but i want to go back and take a look at verses 10 and 11 again and explain this back in verse 10 it says but i wasn't uh it says but i wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin uh, or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols, you would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you would not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such a person. You see, he, he makes a difference here. In verse 11, he said, with anyone who claims to be a believer but involved in sexual sin. So now we know we're not just talking about leaders, right? So Paul, Paul's prohibiting fellowship between believers can apply to a straying believer, not just leaders. Okay, when believers reject God through their words or actions, they place themselves in a dangerous situation. And people don't realize this, but it's a dangerous situation. Because when we ignore sin with someone we know that's a believer, it gives the, the, them the impression that we agree with them, that we think it's okay, that we don't mind it, right? And that may serve to prolong the process of repentance for them and cause great damage. Right? I mean, later in this letter, Paul describes the discipline God brings on straying believers, right? And let me set the scene before I read these passages. 
in Corinth, they were, you know, celebrating the Lord's Supper as a part of the Passover, which it has always been a part of the Passover. And they took it to a different level. They weren't just having wine and bread. They were getting hammered on wine. They were making it into a session of gluttony. They were pigging out at the Lord's Supper. And that's not what it was for, right? And not only were they gluttonizing and getting drunk, they refused to let poor or people with a, who didn't have an important name, they didn't let them take part in the Lord's Supper. They started excluding people. And this is, this is a huge, huge no-no, right? Huge. So God started bringing varying levels of discipline on them to turn them back on track. Look at this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. He says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, the communion. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, listen, for this reason, many among you, this is talking to the Corinthians, are weak, sick, and a number, what? Sleep. What does that mean to the Hebrew? Death. Because you have ignored these things, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So the Corinthians' blatant disregard for God's word was so serious he couldn't overlook it. Right? I mean, misusing an event that's supposed to honor God could have drove people away from God. And it was, draw it was driving people away. So God had to discipline them and remind them their behavior was unacceptable, and he did it in phases. Some could take a general reminder. Things started going wrong. They started becoming weak, and they're like, something's not right. And they realize and they confess. Other people would have to get sick and get everything they had taken from them before they realized God's trying to get my attention. But there are some people who just refuse to admit they're wrong, and God isn't going to take their salvation, but he's not going to let them stay here and be a stumbling block. So he had the right. He has the right to bring them on home. And that's what he was talking about here. They still go to heaven. He just wasn't going to leave them here to be a distraction to other people. And this is still true for everybody today who refuses to turn. So if you have a friend who's involved in sexual immorality and you just act like nothing's going on, they think you're okay with it. If I have someone who, if a good friend of mine's cheating on his wife and he says, let's go to lunch, I'm going to say, we will go to lunch if it's for me to help you devise a plan to make this right with your wife. Because if you want me to just go to lunch with you and pretend that you're okay, I'm not doing it. Because maybe I'm the only one in this room who respects your wife enough to make sure that shouldn't be happening. I'm not going to go sit down and act like everything's okay. And you shouldn't either. We need to, it, it's in their best interest that we turn them back on the right path because you see what happens if we don't. And here's the thing. God is not going to let us be a hindrance either. Eventually, he's going to pull the plug. So if you're actually being passionate like God is passionate about his people when you refuse to allow them to live in that situation but want to see them restored that's what Paul was trying to teach and it's not just about leadership although most of this was churches have got to quit tolerating sin and I don't care what's popular in the general public I don't care what's politically correct if it's not in the Bible we're not going to accept it and I had somebody tell me well that might land you in jail and I said I'd rather land in jail than in God's disfavor put me in jail because here's the thing the world is going to move away from God that's its job as believers, we should be moving closer, holding each other accountable. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I'm going to ask if you would to please bow your heads. We always like to give an invitation. So while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you would like me to pray for you, you're not sure where you stand with God, or you just need prayer, make eye contact with me. Bless those people. And I'm going to pray for you. Bless those people. And I actually do pray for you people. Bless those people. And I pray for those of you online who are watching and listening.
but I also pray for us believers because I just think we're in a critical time. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your love and your mercy and especially your grace because if we got what we deserved, it certainly wouldn't be heaven. But you give us what we don't deserve because Jesus took our place and we have trusted in his payment to cover our sin. I just thank you that you made salvation that easy because if you didn't, we'd never find it. I can't believe you love us that much, but I'm so glad that you do. So if there's someone here who doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, remove it from their mind because... Just the way you died with your arms outstretched is the way you're still standing, waiting for anyone who will embrace you and believe. And if they believe that what you did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, your word says they'll have it. If they make that decision, I just pray they contact us. But for those of us who are believers, don't let us be complacent anymore, God. Don't let us be deceived by the world and tolerant of things that could destroy people's lives and could destroy churches. Let us find a way to dig deep within ourselves and find the love that, that you've placed in each one of us and humbly with compassion, reach out to those people, just like we hope they would reach out to us. God, when we become more accountable to you, we become more powerful for you. Let us become the people that change this world. God, we ask that you would go with us as we leave here, keep us safe, and if you don't return before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.